grab a paper. There's papers in the back. Did anybody not get one? They're on the back, Jolie. Uh, I don't think we ran out yet. <clears throat> um, for people on Facebook, you can download this from our website and our website is uh, Belair1st.org. Is that right? Nope, I got to spell Belair right. That's not right either. I don't know what our, what is our website? First Church, Belair First Church, 1stchurch.org, okay. Dot org, yeah, okay. Um, so if you go to our website, Yeah, I know I should have should already know where this is. Somewhere on here, you should be able to download the document. Um, Chad, if you're watching, could you post it on Facebook for people to download? Thanks. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and get started now. Um, tonight, we're going to talk about the Book of Ruth, and. If you are on Facebook and have any comments or questions, please feel free to leave them. I got my computer here so I can see them and I will answer them as best I can. And if anybody here in the uh, sanctuary has any questions or comments, just raise your hand at any time and, or just blurt it out and uh, we'll, we'll get your questions answered. But before we begin, let's uh, say a prayer. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence tonight, Lord, looking to learn about you and the mysteries that you have given to us through your word. Things that remain hidden, and we want to lift the veil and see them. Things that we may have read and maybe partially understood or maybe never understood. But Lord, we pray that tonight you'll help us understand. We pray that as we continue each of these weeks that you will guide us and quicken our hearts so that we can know more about you. And as we know more about you, that we can grow closer to you. And as we grow closer to you, that we can be in greater relationship with you. So that we can know you better, change our lives, and surrender all that we have to you. So Father, be with us tonight and every day. And we ask all these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, my voice last week was a whisper around this time. There was no way I was going to be able to, to do this. Um, it is not fully back yet, but it's much better than it was. Um, I went to Texas Friday, and <laughs> we went out to eat. My friend and I went out to eat, and just as it was my turn to order, I started talking, and hardly anything was coming out. So I took a couple of swigs of water and got the, the order out, but I, I couldn't say much even on Friday. But it's been gradually getting better, and... Hopefully it'll stay that way. And for those on Facebook, Kathy has just said how to get to this sheet here tonight. This is kind of a guide. Um, we will talk about a lot of it that's in here. I'm not gonna read it to you. You can read it on your own. Um, there's some stuff in here that we won't cover tonight, 
but just some interesting stuff that you can study on your own. Some of it gets a little bit deep, but um, it all is about the book of Ruth, except the very last page. And if we have time, and I'm sure we will, I'm going to cover the section of the cross. So if you're on Facebook, make sure you download the document because this last page, you're going to need to really be able to follow along and see this part to really understand what we're talking about when we get to that. Okay, so the story of Ruth is a love story. And a lot of times there's a particular verse that is pulled out of the book of Ruth that is used at weddings. And it is um, beginning with verse 16, but Ruth said, do not plead with me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you sleep, I will sleep. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death separates me from you. So any part of that is often used in a wedding to say that when two people come together, man and woman come together, that they are inseparable for life. But here we have Ruth saying this to her mother-in-law. So if you didn't read, I'm going to just kind of go over real quick, a real short synopsis of what Ruth is, and then we'll, we'll kind of get into it and pull out some of the mysteries of it. So there was a man named Elimelech, and I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, or Elimelech. And he was from Bethlehem. We've heard of Bethlehem before, right? So when we see Bethlehem in the Old Testament, we know it's going to be something about Jesus, right? That's our first clue. It's going to be about Jesus because it's talking about Bethlehem, and he was born in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem's mentioned quite a bit in the Old Testament because of Jesus. So he and his wife and their two sons go to a land called Moab. Now, Moab was not a real liked place, kind of like Martin's Ferry if you're in Belair, right? <laughs> okay, or St. Clairsville. Um, but no, it was, it was worse than that. And unfortunately, they say the same thing about Belair and Martin's Ferry. But anyway, um, he goes to this place called Moab, and there were some strict rules about Moab. No Hebrew woman Israelite woman was ever permitted to marry a man from Moab. However, I know this is not going to sound good, men were permitted to marry women from Moab. It was, they didn't really want you to, but you were permitted to do it. It wasn't breaking the law. Now, that's not God's law. That's the tradition that they had developed up until that point. So, the thing about Moab, um, Ammon and Moab, they were enemies of Israel. And the way these two towns came about goes way back to Abraham and Lot. You ever heard of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, how God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? Fire came down from the sky, destroyed the entire city. Well, when that happened, um, Abraham went to Sodom and Gomorrah and said to God, you know, I want to get Lot out. And then he even said things like, you know, if I can find 50 righteous people in that town, will you save it? God said, I'll save it for 50 righteous people. He goes down, he says, how about 10? I'll save it for 10. How about five? I'll save it if you can find five righteous people in that town. And God destroyed it. And you know, God doesn't break promises, so 
there were not even five righteous people in that town. That's how bad Sodom and Gomorrah had become. Well, anyway, right after it's destroyed, Lot's daughters, Lot was Abraham's nephew. He had two daughters. They thought for sure it was the end of the world. They were the only people left on earth. Their mother had turned into a pillar of salt, and they needed to get the world repopulated. So they got their dad drunk, and they got their dad to impregnate them. They each had a son, Moab and Ammon, and that's how they became the cities of Moab and Ammon, where they settled. And they, since they were born out of sin, these cities became very evil, did some very wicked things to Israel throughout their time wandering in the desert many, many years down the road after the story of Ruth and after they became the two cities of Moab and Ammon. But anyway, um, God never really liked Moabites or the Ammonites because of that. So here, these two, these two young men that are with their parents, they married Moabite women. It's all in chapter 1. And as it went on, the story goes on, Naomi's husband died, and she was left with her two sons, and they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, not Oprah, O-R-P-A-H, not O-P-R-A-H, Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. Now, right away, how many people do you know named Ruth? I'm sure everybody knows somebody named Ruth, or at least heard the name, right? How many people you know named Orpah? You do? Okay. <laughs> I have never heard of anyone named Orpah. <laughs> but something about when a person in the Bible has a specific name and they do something good, their name typically lives on, and other people get named that. Have you heard of Joshua or Caleb? Heard those names before? And I could look up, I don't remember the other 10 guys that were with Joshua and Caleb, but because people don't have their names anymore. But we say, oh, well, Joshua and Caleb, of course, those are common names, but so was Orpah back then. But because of what she did, it's not so common anymore. And what she did was, Naomi said to them, you know what? Your, your husbands are, are dead. I'm going back to Bethlehem. You go back to Moab. You find other husbands. And Orpah said, okay, see you later. She took, takes off. And Ruth says, no, I'm staying with you. Now, it doesn't say so in the Bible, but it's believed that they were sisters. Okay? It is believed that they were sisters, and that's kind of important. And we're just going to assume that they're sisters. Okay, for, for what's going to happen next. So, Naomi says, no, go ahead. And that's where we get to that verse, what I read, that says, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. So Ruth sticks around. She's going to stick with Naomi. Really good thing to do. And now God is the type of God that he says, okay, you're a Moabite woman, but if you want to be a part of Israel, you can be. Follow the Passover and do a couple other things, and you'll be in Israel. You'll be, and he always did this for any outsider. He was, he's always been very welcoming to bring people in. So Orpah goes away. Now, this isn't in the Bible, but it is believed that from history, from people who have passed down oral history and wrote it down in what's called the Talmud, T-A-L-M-U-D, it's kind of like a Jewish book like the Bible, but it's not the inspired word of God, it is their tradition written down. It's their history book, 
and their rules and their laws and, and their interpretation of the Bible. In the Talmud, it says that Orpah went back to Moab and got drunk and slept with a bunch of men that night. And one of them got her pregnant, and the result was a guy named Goliath. Heard that name before? David and Goliath? So Goliath was a giant. So if they're sisters, okay, Ruth now has a nephew named Goliath. Now, as we are going to find out later on, Ruth will give birth to a son who will give birth to a son who will give birth to David. Well, not the man, but the, the wife of each of these men will give birth. So David fights Goliath, who was his relative. Pretty interesting, huh? So just for the sake of argument, we'll say that they were sisters, and David therefore killed one of his cousins. Distant cousin, but still killed one of his cousins. Okay, so as the story goes on, they come back to Bethlehem, and Ruth is very loyal, and she goes out and she finds a field where in the book of the law, God said that when you harvest a field, you leave the corners. You don't take the corners, you leave the corners. Now, I don't know how big of an area this is. Um, I've read that it's, it's a rather large area, not just like a tiny little section, like this little, like as big as this table. It's a very large area that you don't glean the, the uh, harvest from there. You leave it for anyone who is poor and would need something to eat. So she went out and she happened upon the field of a man named Boaz. Okay. And Boaz leaves this part for her and she went out and this is verse three of chapter two. So she went, she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Oh, there's Bethlehem again. Okay. And said to the reapers, may the Lord be with you. And they said to him, may the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant in charge of the reapers replied, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has remained from morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz went to Ruth and said, listen carefully, do not glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but join my young women here. Keep your eyes on the field, which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have ordered the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from the, what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Boaz replied to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and may your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly 
to your servant, though I am not like one of your female servants. So what's that mean, not like one of your female servants? She's a foreigner. She probably looked a little different too. She didn't look like she was a Hebrew. But, so she's an outsider and they had very strict laws about outsiders. You could become part of Israel, but you had to go through all the rules. But here he is saying, drink from the jars, eat from the fields. He is showing kindness to her because she chose to follow her mother-in-law. Okay, so stick with me. I promise you this is going to get, this is going to get better. Okay, so she promised to follow her mother-in-law. So, verse 14, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here, that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So right there, we have something that the Jews have picked up on over the years, and they celebrate this particular, they read this particular passage at a particular time every year because of when this happened and what it means to them. But if we dig deeper beyond what it means to them and being the Pentecost and, and harvest at the Pentecost, let's pull out a couple of things that, are, that we see in here. What did Jesus say about bread? A couple of things he said in the New Testament. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God. And he took a piece of bread, okay? He broke it and he said, I'm going to dip this in this wine and the person I give it to will be the one that betrays me, okay? So here, Boaz is saying to her, come in that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. Now, what's vinegar? Vinegar is something that is very acidic, very sour. When Jesus died, he was the bread of life, dying on the cross, and they, he said, I thirst, and they dipped a sponge in some vinegar and gave it to him. So there's a tie there between the death on the cross and this passage in Ruth. Now, the Jews see it as this is a Pentecost thing, but here it's a foreshadowing of the bread of life coming with the vinegar because Jesus is in the lineage of Ruth and Boaz, okay? So it's a foreshadowing in a, in a sense. And then verse 15, when she got up to glean, Boaz commanded a servant saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not insult her. Also you are purposely also you are to purposely slip out for some grain from the bundles and leave it so that she may glean and do not rebuke her. So they're taking the good bread and giving it to this foreigner so that she may eat and have something good. Jesus took the good bread his body and gave it to all the foreigners all of us and when we partake of it we are fed by him and we live forever. So any questions or comments about that so far? There's a fly bugging me up here. Okay. I'm sorry? I, I still can't hear I can keep the fly up here. Well, if I can get my hands on it, it's dead. I'll tell you that. Okay. Um, so Boaz has taken notice of Ruth and 
he's, be, he's treating her kindly, just as God takes notice of us and treats us kindly. So where does the real thing come into play here? And that is in chapter 3. In the law, we can read that if a husband and wife are married and the man dies, the brother of that man, the next in line, would marry, if he's unmarried, would marry that brother who died, marry his wife, to be a kinsman redeemer. So back in the days when, um, of the Bible, women were caring for the children, weren't necessarily working much in the fields. They would glean some of the crops, but for the most part, they relied on their husbands to provide for them. So if, this, if a man died, the woman had no means of being provided for. So the brother, by law, would have to marry, if he was unwed, marry that woman to become the kinsman redeemer. So this was only for Jewish people, though, or Hebrew people, I should say. But Boaz says, you know what? I kind of like Ruth. And I am of the, his, her, I am of the family of Elimelech. Her husband has passed on. So I am going to be the kinsman redeemer for her. And in verse three, we read, then her mother-in-law, Naomi, or, I'm sorry, chapter three, we read, then her mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may go well for you? Now then, is Boaz not our relative who, who, with whose young women you were? Behold, he is winnowing barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor, but do not reveal yourself to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So as it goes on, Boaz finds Ruth and he realizes who she is, and he says that I will see about being your redeemer. He, she says in verse 9, who are, Boaz says, who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your slave. Now spread your garment over your slave, for you are a redeemer. Then he said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. So now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you say, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. But now, although it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is also a redeemer more closely related. So there was somebody that was closer that should have taken the step of being the redeemer. So Boaz then goes on to say to this man, will you redeem Ruth because she is in need of a redeemer? She's following the law here. She doesn't have to. She's not a Hebrew. She's not an Israelite. But she's following the law by saying, you are a redeemer. And he says, okay, you're doing everything that God says to do. I'm going to redeem you. So when we come to the Lord and we surrender to him, he redeems us. She's surrendering her life to him. And as it goes on, um, Boaz finds who the person is that should be the redeemer, and he says he doesn't want to do it. So he makes a, 
Let me find this again real quick here. Um, <clears throat> Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, come over here, friend, sit down here. He came over and sat down. This is chapter 4. And he took 10 of the men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. 10. Remember that number from two weeks ago? That's an important number. They sat down, and he said to the said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the land of Moab, has to sell the plot of land which belonged to her brother, to our brother, Elimelech. So I thought I would inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me so that I may know, for there is no one except you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will not redeem it. So he's not going to buy the land. He's not going to be the redeemer for Naomi, he's not, he had the choice to not do this. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also require Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, otherwise I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself, that you may have the right of redemption, since I cannot redeem it. So Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer, and he says to him, buy it for yourself. And so he removed his sandal. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilean and Malon. Furthermore, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of his inheritance. So in order to become the kinsman redeemer, he had to pay the price. He had to buy out the other redeemer. He had to buy the land, and with it he acquired Ruth. So what's this mean? Jesus bought us at a great price. Cost him his life. I'm going to diverge for a moment here and say that when we are born, we are born spiritually dead, physically alive, but spiritually dead, and we become born again or spiritually alive when we put our faith in Jesus Christ because he is the only one who was not born spiritually dead. When he was born, he was born very much physically alive and spiritually alive. And because of that, when he died, his spirit lived on. His spirit, a spirit that is born, that is reborn and is born spiritually alive will not die. So for him to be killed physically, God said, I am giving you back your life. And he, re he was re resurrected physically because his spirit was still alive within him. The price he paid was giving up his life early on earth because he was very much a man, very much God, but he gave that up early in order to redeem us. Boaz gave up, he bought at a price, gave up a lot just to redeem Ruth. So here is the story back in the Old Testament of Jesus redeeming all the people, including the foreigners that come 
with the purchase. She's a foreigner that comes with the purchase. She didn't have to be there, but she chose to be. She surrendered to him. He paid the price. He gets her. So we, as foreigners to God, are now made alive in God because of the price that he paid as our kinsman redeemer. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Chapter four, verse 13. So I've got a question. What was Boaz before they got married? Ruthless. <laughs> I know that was pretty bad, wasn't it? Uh, if you were watching on Facebook, there's a lot of shaking heads in this sanctuary right now. <laughs> yeah, okay, sorry, bad joke. Um, So when we get to the end of chapter 4, beginning with verse 16, um, Naomi took the child that Ruth had given birth to, laid him in her lap, in, in Ruth's lap, and became his nurse. And the neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then it goes on to say the generations from Obed through Jesse, through David, all the way, or I'm sorry, from Perez of the son of, of Judah down to David. So this is also establishing for beyond the shadow of a doubt that the lineage of Jesus came from the tribe of Judah because this goes down through David and as we get to the New Testament we see how David's David gave birth to Solomon who gave birth to to Rehoboam who gave birth to I can't remember all of them but they go on until we get to Jesus now an interesting fact about Ruth is there are four women mentioned in the Bible that are in the lineage of Jesus. Four, there's a lot of women mentioned in the Bible, but four that are in the lineage of Jesus. And Ruth is one of them. So mostly it's men mentioned in the lineage of Jesus, but there are four women. Now, do you remember from last week or two weeks ago, the number four? Does anybody remember what the number four is for? When we see the number four, it has something to do with the Messiah. So these four women, it's not just happenstance that four women are in the lineage of Judah, or I'm sorry, lineage of Jesus. And I know you're probably asking me, who are they? The Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Mary are all in the, mentioned in the lineage of Jesus. But they're all important for many reasons. Number one, to establish that he came from, the, from Judah. That goes back to Tamar, way back in the book of Genesis. Another reason is to show the number four, to point to the Messiah. Now, another interesting fact, how many chapters is the book of Ruth? Four. That's not by chance. Now, you might say, but they didn't add chapters and verses until the 1500s. Right, that's correct. But the same God who inspired people to write the Bible inspired the man who put the 
Geneva Bible together, where we put in chapters and verses, inspired that man to break Ruth into four chapters so that it points to the Messiah. So here we have Jewish people today will read this book because they see David, but they will not let themselves go beyond and see how David's offspring became the Messiah or the kinsman redeemer for the entire world. The entire world. But someday, God will lift the veil for them, and they will then see the Jesus of the Jesus spoken of in the Bible, spoken of in the book of Ruth, because Boaz is like a type and shadow of Jesus who is to come by redeeming even foreigners with the purchase that he made. Am I losing you? Questions, comments? I have a couple comments on Facebook. Let's see. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, I'm going to stop there for a moment, and we can come back to Ruth if you decide you have questions. I want to make sure we spend a little bit of time talking about this last page. Because something I want to do every week is just throw in a little something extra after we go through the main lesson. And some days it may be more than one thing that we go through. And this was pointed out to me, and I, when I first looked at it, I thought, that's not adding up right. But then the more I thought about it, and I read it again and again and again, I realized that God has purposely put into the Bible something very specific in the book of Numbers chapter 2, okay? And when we read Numbers, it can be difficult because it's very repetitive. Of the tribe of Simeon, there were this many people. Or the tribe of Reuben, there was this many people. Of the tribe of Simeon, there was this many people. The tribe of Levi, and it goes on and on and on. And then Later on, you get into the point where they're, they're talking, not counting people now. Now they're counting spoons and forks and bowls. Okay, so it can get pretty tedious. But in the book of Numbers chapter 2, this blew my mind. And hopefully I'll be able to explain it and blow your mind too. So first of all, we're going to look at this cross. We know what a cross is for, right? I don't think anybody here would deny what the cross is. Is for the symbol of our faith. Jesus died on a cross. Um, you can see the cross back there. It's straight post and then a crossbar. Crossbar is up towards the top a little bit, so there's more space on the bottom than there is on the top, and the sides are pretty even. Now, the cross that Jesus died on was it? Did they measure it out and say, okay, we got three feet on this side, we got to have three feet on this side? I don't think so. They, they probably were off a little bit because they didn't have sawmills and they didn't have really expensive saws, so they didn't tape measures and say, we got to get this perfect. After all, it's the Messiah. No, they could, took a piece of wood, they pounded it on a crossbar, and then they nailed him to it, and it was probably off a little bit. Okay, so that's what I'm trying to show you with this 
here. If we break it into sections, we still see that it's a cross, and there's a little bit at the top, there's more at the bottom, and the sides are kind of even, but for our demonstration, they're not going to be exactly even. So then if I turn it on the side, it's still a cross, it's just pointing in a different direction. This is pointing to the east, this is the west, this is the north, and this is the south. Does everybody see that? Okay, so keep that in mind for a moment. And I'm going to read Numbers chapter 2, if you want to follow along with me. In my Bible, it says, arrangement of the camps. So God's arranging the camps. This is something he did frequently. He would tell them, kind of like putting, um, like a shepherd would do with a sheep. He puts, puts it down, says, stay there, and the shepherd's supposed, to, or the sheep's supposed to lay there. Deer do it a lot with their babies. They lay them down. Cows do it. They lay their offspring down. So God's telling them where to camp. And here's what it says. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, The sons of Israel shall camp, camp each by his own flag. With the banners of their father's households, they shall camp around the tent of meeting at a distance. So first of all, what is the tent of meeting? Well, when they came out of Egypt, God took Moses up on Mount Sinai, gave him the Ten Commandments, and he, he gave him a lot of laws. And he said, while you are in the desert, you shall establish a tent. And he gave the exact measurements of it, what it should look like, what should be inside. I mean, he was very specific. It's all in the book of Exodus. Okay, so wherever they went, they would set up this tent. There were people that were specifically were meant to first create the tent and also to set it up. And it was to symbolize the temple that would be created later on. But more than that, it symbolizes our heart because the Lord lives within our heart. So anyway, let's go on. Now, those who camp on the east side, okay, so let's look at our paper on the bottom here, on the east side, this part over here, okay, shall be of the flag of the camp of Judah by their armies and the leader of the sons of Judah, Nashon, the son of Aminadab, and his army, their numbered men, 74,600. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar, and the leader of the sons of Issachar, Nethanel, the son of Zuar, and his army numbered men, 54,400. Then follows the tribe of Zebulun, and the leader of the sons of Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon, and his army numbered men, 57,400. The total of the numbered men of the camp of Judah, 186,400. By their armies they shall set out first. Okay. So I'm not going to read all the rest of it, but I'm going to point out these numbers. Just If you've got a pen or a pencil or something, write that down, 186,400. Write that on the where it says east, okay? So then when we get to verse 16, um, we have the tribes of Reuben, Simeon, and Gad, okay? And their total is 151,450. So that would go to the south side. So here we got 187,000, here we got 151,450. Okay, and then he talks about, the tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of Levites in the midst of the camps, just as they camp, 
so they shall set out every man in his place by their flags. So in the middle here, we got all these tribes set up over here, <coughs> 186,000. Here we've got tribes set up at 157,000, and we got the Levites in the middle. So then he's going to go on and say the west side, which is over here, okay, the west side is going to have Ephraim and Manasseh and Benjamin. Yes, Benjamin. And their total is only 108,100. So put that number there. So we got, again, just a quick recap, 187,000 on the east, <coughs> 157,000 on the south, <coughs> and my voice is starting to go out again. 108,000 on the west side and the south side shall be, um, I'm sorry, the north side, up here, yeah, north side, shall be Dan and Asher and, boy, I can't remember who's left, <laughs> <clears throat> Nephtali, Dan, Asher, and Nephtali. So their total is 157,600. <coughs> so put that number up there. So do you see what's going on? If we look at this cross, so let's look at the one on top here. There's more space on the bottom part. The side parts are for the most part, even, and then there's just a small space at the top. If we take the number of people, 108,000, 151, and 157 on the sides, and 187 on the bottom. If you imagine all these people camped out in these little squares, it forms the shape of a cross. You see it? So just the number of people filling out the space a small number, because remember in the middle, we got the tent of meeting. We got the, the Levites, which is a very small number, and spread out in a little bit of space. So at the head of it, if we put the cross straight up and down, 108,000 people in this one little area. So 108,000 people are going to take up a lot of space, but they're going to take up less space than 187,000 people on this bottom section pointing to the east, and they're going to take up the, the ones on the side with 151 and 157 are taking up less space than the bottom part, but more space than the top part. So just imagine, in your mind, people camped in squares, and the, they keep going further out until they run out of people, and if you count up the number of people, it forms a cross on its side, because there's more people to this side, very few people to this side, and the two others are very close in number, 151,000 and 157,000. So, God purposely had them camp so that where they were, when they were all camped and bundled together, if you were to look at it from a plane, okay, or from God's eyes, you're looking down, you're seeing, if I took all of you and I just put you in a line and I could form a cross with the people that are here, right? I'd put maybe one person in front, two on each side, and then the rest, of all five of you would go down the middle, and from the ceiling, it would look like a cross, right? That's the way the camps looked when God looked down. And God is looking down from the east, so as he's looking down, he's seeing it 
as a cross. Foreshadowing the cross that would come in the future. Foreshadowing his son dying on that cross. So tell me, just first of all, does everybody understand? Is anybody lost? Do I need to explain it again? Okay. How can someone read the Bible, have these things pointed out to you, and not believe that Jesus did indeed die on the cross for us? There's so much evidence. It's undeniable. The connection of Jesus to Boaz, not only the same lineage, but as a kinsman redeemer, and then to see God looking down from heaven and seeing a cross on the ground when the Israelites are camped out. He could have just said, hey, just camp in this area. You know, like if I, if I put, brought a 500 people here and I said, you know, just camp in the sanctuary, we'd be scattered out everywhere, right? And some people would be closer together. Some would want to be in the corners away from everybody else. But he specifically had them camp by numbers, by tribes, so that they formed this cross that he could look down upon every time they camped. If, you don't, if you're not getting it, please speak up. I will explain it. I'll, I'll try to do a better job. And same on Facebook. If you guys aren't getting it, let me know, and I'll try to do a better job explaining it. But it's pretty amazing to me how God has done this. And this is just one thing in the Bible. Just one little thing. And someday the people in Israel are going to be reading the book of Numbers and they're going to say, wait a minute, and they're going to write it down and they're going to say, okay, maybe they'll draw it to scale. Say, hey, we got 187,000 people going this way. We got 151 going this way, 157 going this way, and 108, oh, wow, that forms a cross. And they're going to get it because God's going to lift the veil for them and they're going to accept Christ as their Savior. Now, when that happens that's when things really start moving <laughs> in this world because that's God's ultimate goal is to save the world. And right there in the center where God dwells is the tent of meeting. So, you know, I don't know how many times, and, and it mentions many times in the Bible, this is just one place where God has them camp and they spread out in their camps and they form these lines and never realized that God was making a cross on the ground. And like I said, when someone pointed it out to me, I said, oh, well, 151 and 157, they're not even numbers, so that can't be right. And then I went, wait a minute. It's not like they cut off three feet on each side and made a perfectly formed cross like that one back there. No doubt the cross and everybody's cross was different. Just like for us today, we all have different crosses to bear. Okay, any questions or comments about that? Those are the types of things that I want to pull out and show you. Because I think that when we see things like this, I mean, maybe it's just me, I don't know. But when I see things like this, it makes me feel closer to God. That he cared so much that he shows us 
these, like with Boaz being the connection. And it's not just Boaz. There are other connections that I will show you with Elijah, Moses, um, Joseph, Jacob, David. There are so many connections. And the numbers, the number 10 and the number two and how they come together and then how number three and the number seven come together. And just, it's mind boggling what God has put into the, the Bible. And he proves it time and again in many different ways. The things that are spoken in the Bible are not just spoken because it makes a good story. They were spoken, they were written down because it points to Jesus in every single way. Every single book of the Bible points to Jesus. It looks forward. Um, I, I put it in, this, in the handout, but I didn't really say it. We need to be careful not to look at the Bible as, let's go back and find Jesus in the Old Testament. We should start with the Old Testament and say, where is this pointing to Jesus in the future? Because that's why God did what he did. Everything, Noah, everything, it all points to Jesus. So if you stick with me the next few weeks, we will discuss that, as long as my voice holds out. <laughs> I really felt bad last week for having to cancel, but ask Tanya, I couldn't talk at all. <laughs> it was hard. It was very difficult. <clears throat> for once, she was saying what instead of me saying what to her. <laughs> All right, any other questions or comments? Because that's all I have for tonight. We're finishing up a little bit early, but that's all I have. <clears throat> Is there anything, that, like a burning question that anybody has, either here or on Facebook, that you just wanted to know and never really knew where to find it? Because I'll either answer it now or I'll try to find it for you. And even if it's not tonight, you can hit me up with it at any time. No? Nope. Very quiet group tonight. Okay. Um, let me look at this. I put on some... Does anybody remember the, the memory verse from last week? Or you're like, oh, wait, we had a memory verse? <laughs> no, if you... Again... I am not going to tie you to the pews and say, hey, look, you need to know these verses. These were put in here for you if you want to memorize something. Because when we memorize verses, if we start real small, and I, I'm giving you the ones that are more popular, when you memorize them and you hear them, either in a sermon or you hear people talking or you read it in the Bible for yourself, it, it kind of establish, further establishes that connection with God. So that's why I gave you... A memory verse. Last week was John 3.3. 3. Um, I tell you the truth that no one can see the kingdom of heaven unless they're born again. This week's is, for you are saved by faith through grace. It is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. So next week, if you read, if you want to read ahead, Exodus 1 through 4, we're going to talk about Moses. We're going to see how Moses, we'll, we'll go beyond chapter 4. But that just kind of gets you a feel for who Moses is 
And there's some things about his early life that I want to point out and show how they tie to Jesus. And then um, 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, and Proverbs chapter 12. We'll try to, to hit on all those things. We didn't hit on Psalm 91 this week, which was from last week. And we may not hit on Proverbs chapter 12, but definitely Exodus 1 through 4 and 1 Peter 1 for next week if you want to read ahead. All right, if there's nothing else, I'll say a prayer and we can get out of here. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this night. We thank you for opening our eyes and we pray, Lord, that you will continue to help us understand this, to show us how these numbers point to the cross. Show us how Boaz is a form of Jesus who was to come. And Father, we pray that you take all that we learn in these weeks and continue to grow it in us, strengthen our relationship with you, and help us to see even more things that we do not necessarily learn in here, but we might be able to find on our own, or at least put a spark in us to get us to look or ask and see if it's something worth looking into. Because Lord, we know that that's part of how our relationship works, how you're continually guiding and directing us. So do this for us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody, on Facebook, and we'll see you next week. Oh, wait, real quick. Next week, I'm going to try, Dave and I are going to try, to set up in the back um, so that you can take notes better rather than sitting in the pews. We're going to try to get some tables set up and chairs, and if we can get the camera to work and everything on Facebook, then we'll be in the back. We won't be here in the sanctuary. And if that works, we'll keep doing that from then on because I think it'll be a little bit better to, um, to be able to write. And if you don't want to sit at a table, you can still sit in the comfy chairs or on the couch or whatever, and you should still be able to, to hear me. Okay? All right. Thanks, everybody.